Right. Good evening, everyone. I'm Jen Gray, Senior Manager with AWS Security Growth Strategies. And for today's session, we're going to have a lot of fun since we worked hard all week in preparing this for you. Um, so enjoy this um, session today. You're going to learn a lot about um, how our panelists here have designed a governance strategy using AWS, particularly with a use case related to um, the advanced data research facility um, that we'll talk a little bit um, more. So I want this to be a great um, conversation. Um, we have uh, Dr. Julia, Dr. Julia Lane from the New York University, and she was charged in designing and building the advanced data research facility um, to really provide a new mechanism of providing a, a safe place for data sharing around agencies and states. And she's going to talk a little bit more of why that was important and the purpose of that. Uh, she has this huge um, menu of things that she's accomplished. And I'm just going to read a few because I was quite impressed of all the things that she's accomplished in such a short time. But um, she is the director um, for the Center for, she's the, a professor at the Center for the Urban Science and Progress at NYU's Wagner Graduate School of Public Service. And she also established the Center of Science and Innovation Policy Program and co-founded the Institute of Research on Innovation in Science at the University of Michigan. Um, she held positions at the National Science Foundation and the Urban Institute, as well as the World Bank, just to name a few. And during her free time, um, she published over 70 articles um, and is the recipient of over $50 million worth of grants from foundations such as the National Science Foundation and the Alfred um, P. Sloan Foundation. Next, we have um, Yousaf Ahmed with Earthlink Security, and he is the chief executive officer for the company. He has been a catalyst in driving secure solutions on AWS and working with many of our customers and government agencies and understanding what their requirements are and helping them get through those uh, compliance and requirements. Um, Yousef is also, his company is an AWS partner and has been leading a lot of the government solutions for the public sector. And last but not least, we have Tim Anderson. He is our senior technical industry specialist with Amazon Web Services Security Growth Strategies team. And Tim is one of our um, leading um, security um, advisors who comes and works with both our commercial and public sector customers in identifying really cool security and compliance solutions that can be made as case studies for other customers to use and leverage. Uh, so a lot of you who have attended the Executive Summit um, or the Executive uh, Summit Series, uh, Tim has led a lot of that. And for some of you who are in public sector have heard many of his sessions from last year, uh, reInvent. And so we're going to begin um, with a few questions that I have um, for Julia. But before I get started, uh, I want to ask the audience with a raise of hands, how many of you are responsible for managing and providing oversight on your organization's data? Wow, that's a lot. And then for those of you in the audience who raised your hand, how many of you find it very easy? OK, I thought so. <laughs> I was like, whoever raised their hand, you need to be on stage with us. <laughs> um, so that's what we're going to learn today. We're going we're to talk about how um, 
how, I'm gonna call her Julia because I got to know her that way. Um, and um, she's gonna talk about her, um, the work that she's done in order to come up with a strategy on doing just that. You know, you're hearing a lot about data privacy. You're hearing a lot about data governance, um, new data protection laws that are just coming across the industry. But no one's telling you what to do or how to do it right. And so in this session, we're gonna learn about how she did it for NYU's Advanced Data Research Facility. So with that said, Julia, can you please talk about what is the Advanced Data Research yeah, uh, Administrative Data Research Facility? Um, so, so let's uh, give you some sense. Uh, so first of all, apologies for standing. Uh, I'm, for those of you who um, uh, ever go downstairs, when you go downstairs, hold on to the handrail. <laughs> I managed to, to fracture my uh, hip uh, on Thanksgiving morning, so I still can't sit down. Um, so I'm, an, I'm different from many of you. I'm an economist by training. So the reason that we uh, built the administrative data research facility was um, in response to a bunch of needs. Uh, so let me encapsulate the problem um, in kind of two examples. About 20 years ago, uh, what I was asked by the Census Bureau to do was to uh, start building a data infrastructure that captured information about the, and this is gonna sound really boring, but please don't run for the hills, um, the dynamic interaction of workers and firms. So what does that mean? So typically we have data on workers, you know, that they collect from surveys and so on, and data on firms, but obviously if you're trying to understand the economy, what you wanna do is you wanna see how those two interact. So what that means is you need to be able to capture confidential microdata on individuals using administrative records. So what administrative records are, are data that are captured by running government programs. And so what we used was unemployment insurance wage records data. So every quarter, every firm, in every state in the country supplies to their State Department of Labor information about every job that they paid earnings on. So you have last name, first name, social security number and earnings for all workers in the covered sector in the United States. So what you wanna do, that captures the dynamic interaction of workers and firms and it costs pennies in the dollar versus thousands per dollar, per, per record um, for, for surveys. So what we did was we brought these data together, linked them to social security administration data on demographics and linked them to uh, tax data and many other things. So, as I'm telling you this, you should be going, oh my God, <laughs> right? How are you going to do that, which provides massive information, in confidential data? How are you gonna protect that? How are you gonna make sure that only the right people work on it, safe people, for only the right purposes, safe projects, in the safe settings, in, and ensure safe exports so that individuals can't get re-identified and do it in a way so that the data are safe. 
right? So I did that 20 years ago. Well, not I. It was a, it was a bunch of people. Um, and it, it's been a huge success. So it demonstrated that administrative records could be brought together relatively cheaply, protect confidentiality, uh, no individual information was re-identified. Then let me give you the second anecdote. So, um, you know, there's a lot of concern about child abuse, child deaths in the United States. And the, um, the problem that is brought up is brought up very clearly in a quote from a city of Baltimore, which is quite a violent city. And so every time a kid dies in Baltimore, and this is a quote from the uh, Commissioner of Human Services, every commissioner who has had something to do with that kid, that is education, welfare, homelessness, criminal justice, they all come together and they share knowledge about what happened to that kid for why that kid died. But the only time they share that data is when the kid is dead, right? So here's the, here's the problem from a social scientist point of view or from a policy point of view, is how do you bring these data together in a secure environment and how can you ensure that people's uh, confidential data are used in order to make better policy and not waste resources. So um, that is pretty much what we've been uh, working towards. Uh, we were charged by the Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking, uh, Paul Ryan and Patty Murray, um, to, um, we were charged to build an infrastructure in 2016 that enabled us to address questions like this. Now, part of the reason why people said, you know, you work with data and you don't know, it's not easy. Part of the problem is, is that getting the data together is only part of it. What you really want to do is um, you want to document it, you want to build stewardship, you want to make sure that everyone who is using it is only using it for authorized purposes. People are collaborating because you need lots of knowledge about what people are doing, uh, and that there's communication between the data user and the and the um, and the data provider. So that's what we built. So what were some of the challenges that you faced? Um, you know, this, now that you had the idea and, and what you're trying to do and solve, what were some of the key challenges that you faced, and what was the approach that you take? And you mentioned the safes, but I'd like to know. What were some of the key challenges, and why did you use the, this, this approach to handling that? So that's a great question. <laughs> so, um, the reason for the five safes is it's not just enough to bring the data into one place. You actually want multiple people working with the data because people need to be able to learn from it to be able to do their jobs better. So you need to have people access it, and they need to understand what they're doing, so they need to be trained. So it's not just a technical solution, it's a human solution. And so the approach that we did was we put together training together with building the secure environment. So it's not just building a safe setting, which is one of the five safes, it's safe people, uh, it's safe projects, they're only allowed to use it for the purposes that have been approved. 
uh, it's safe export so that individuals can't get re-identified, and that's what gives you safe, safe data. So that's very much the approach. Very good. Um, and then so now that you've come oh, up with... I'm going to hide behind <laughs> the chair again. Sorry about being so slow. And now that you've come up with that governance strategy of, um, for the data governance of it, um, you know, when you're working with certain types of data, especially Census Bureau data like Title 13, um, and having to work with the federal government, they have their security requirements. And so this is where you shared with me of how you worked with USEF and Earthling Security of like finding where can we build this on? And so I'm gonna ask you, Yousef, like what did Julia come to you with? And then, you know, how did you build the solution yeah. and using the technology that we have with AWS to implement her, her strategy on data? Yeah, so what was interesting about what uh, Julia came to us in the very beginning was that it wasn't your standard application. We were having a couple of side conversations as well. As she mentioned earlier, it's an entire ecosystem. So having all the security requirements from one side of FedRAMP and from another side from Census Bureau, there's layers of the application that needed to be uh, accounted for security. So um, there was a whole bunch of architectural requirements that um, needed to be accounted for on the application and infrastructure side, but at the same time, we had to go through a process of approval for specific users. Um, there are some users that would have privileged access to data, like Title 13, and others that would not. There'd be some uh, general user community, like end user students that were researchers that were in one class of authorization and another. So all of the controls needed to be bundled within different layers of the application. So when you're, the other, that's challenge one. Challenge two was that, uh, and this is kind of a bigger part of it, is that you're talking about a, a, an application that's kind of evolving into a productionized environment. You're talking about within a very short period to go out in operations and conduct classes and research um, with real live data. So you're talking about designing the environment, securing it at all layers, preparing for an audit, right? And at the same time, anticipating a class to start. But you can't like uh, slip out and forget to go through that standard census process to authorize specific users. So capturing each one of those pieces had to be in both a technical process as well as some kind of a documented form. And it wasn't just, hey, let's make this FedRAMP compliant. We had to go back and get it approved with census. So the big piece of, I would say the spirit of ADRF in every aspect of it is collaborative. I know that's like, I don't think Julia likes that word either, but it really is this where um, we had to work really closely with developers. We had to work really closely with census. So it was truly a DevOpsy kind of an environment. Um, and it's a challenge when you're trying to get certified and authorized by census and get their approvals and at the same time conduct classes like within, you know, right, right around the corner kind of a thing. So how did you, um, so, you know, the need to address FedRAMP, that was, that always seems to be like a hurdle in a lot of solutions. Mm -hmm. um, what, was your, what was your decision in moving towards AWS? And I'm gonna actually be a fan of FedRAMP here because um, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not actually from New York originally. Um, I, anyone figure that out? <laughs> um, but I sat on the Administrative Data Research Network, I was on the IT security, I chaired the IT security in the United Kingdom. And, you know, 
the British had figured out ahead of the Americans uh, that they needed to build a secure environment for government administrative records. And so uh, they spent 38 million pounds, which is about $50 million, to build a secure environment. Um, and part of the problem was, the reason they spent so much money was, they didn't know what the rules were. And so they spent a lot of time trying to figure out you know, what the rules were. Whereas at, with FedRAMP, what was great was, I mean, they might be long and difficult and expensive. We had a checklist. So you know, going the FedRAMP route was, was fantastic from our point of view. So Yusuf, can you kind of walk us, you talked about like, you know, the different layers when you were building this application and then the different processes. Can you walk us through that process of building the solution? Yeah. And so, the patterns and everything that Julia talked about. Yeah. So, so the biggest piece of it was designing, and this is what we started coming up with principles before we actually built the underlying infrastructure for ADRF. ADRF was being cooked before AWS came into the picture, right? Um, one of the big things that we decided was, you guys are a very development-centric and a very data-centric organization. Um, this project is very data-centric. So the biggest thing that we thought was design small. Avoid complexity where it doesn't need to be. Um, the other thing is, when an organization is A, very developer-centric, and B, the project is very data-centric, you're sitting there going, we need to separate as much as we can and have operational and security and management traffic in one place, and you have to have all of your application tiered out in another place. And that piece of it was a little bit more complex because you're planning for uh, tenant isolation for each new data set that gets ingested. So there was quite a few things that AWS brought to the table right out of the gate. For instance, um, just on the FedRAMP side alone, we were able to go back to the developers and say, here's a list of APIs and services that AWS has already that you can use either to optimize your environment or for that matter, even secure it. On top of that, there's such a huge, rich uh, ecosystem of partners that have all these different security tools. So from our perspective... And, and I should say, to make that concrete, um, part of what the commission was interested in doing was bringing in administrative data from multiple sources. So we brought in, within a relatively short period of time, 50 confidential data sets from cities, counties, uh, New York Police Department, Chicago Police Department, Mecklenburg uh, County, North Carolina, State of Illinois, State of Missouri, uh, data from corrections, human services, and so on. And every one of those agencies had their own sets of requirements. So trying to do that manually was not the right approach. Trying to automate it and ensuring that each one of the stakeholders uh, knew that the data were being protected in the way that they requested. So just to yeah, put no, flesh on, on those Even on, on top of that, I mean, the timeline to build, design, secure, implement, and all of that was really close to data ingestion and conducting classes. So having that really, and this is something that I'd probably encourage data projects to be uh, emphasizing more, is how, how can you t closely integrate developers into the security process and set very real expectations for them? Um, whether it means that, uh, and, and this is something that we'll probably talk about for version two of things, designing to fail and having um, more of a focus around data protection controls as opposed to the overall inf infrastructure. 
having, having the expectation that infrastructure will fail as long as data is available, protected, and accounted for, uh, you know, trackable, that kind of thing is going to be the, the bigger focus. So those were some of the, the challenges that we found, but that's specifically why we were able to work with AWS, because we knew we had a really small ramp-up time before we had to conduct classes and ingest all those data sets. That was the biggest thing that uh, was appealing from an, uh, which cloud platform should we select. So you talked about you know, the, the, the main reasons and the benefits that you saw from using AWS is one, you know, yes, we are a FedRAMP compliant sure. provider, and two, the, the, the types of services that we had that were flexible for the different types of developers yeah. using ADRF. What were some key services that you saw that were really, um, that helped scale this, this um, project from the beginning? Key services, so there were, a, I think some of the things that ADRF really needed was not so much the available services that were outside of the, the basic bundles, but more so the, the partners that they had. So I wouldn't say that there were a slew of AWS FedRAMP services that were off kilter or you know, left wing or anything like that. I think the bigger thing was how quickly, and the other bigger problem that um, I would say flexibility wise, you need to have a broad service catalog of partners and tools that would accommodate various budgets. So NYU might have X budget this year and X budget next year, but, and that was the, the big difference. Well, we have the, um, the luxury to pick you know, an enterprise-grade firewall UTM solution versus something that's more in year one startup budget for NYU. So that was, uh, that was also something that enabled us from, a, from an AWS perspective. And a lot of this can be found on our AWS marketplace. And that really helped because when we were going through with the lawyers, you remember the lawyers? Um, <laughs> the, and they had lots of questions, right? Because a lot of the states uh, were like, we don't know about the cloud. We're, we're very nervous about it. But because everything was up on the website, we were able to point to that and explain what was going on. And that was very helpful. So when you identified those partners in, in Marketplace, how easy was it for you? Um, it, it was very easy, actually, because um, one, to be honest, uh, budget drives a lot in a startup organization. So that was the first thing. Capabilities were identified very quickly. So when we were trying to design small, we just needed to know what are the key actual protective capabilities we need, what are the security requirements that we have, and we put together a matrix of that. It doesn't hurt the fact that we already had a service catalog of different tiers priced out for each one of them. Um, so I think for us, knowing what NYU's vision was for this, um, a lot of the stuff was more focused around uh, authorization because of the, the census requirements. A lot of the, the other controls were around data and data protection encryption, that kind of thing. So there was different aspects of um, NYU's project that made uh, kind of the clarity of what security tools to select a little easier. So I have Tim here now. So, so Tim, how can um, others learn from this data strategy? Yeah, I think uh, Yusuf and Julia really articulated an excellent strategy that's both has a uh, simple, consistent nature to it, um, and the ability to use that is that five safes, and how using that in ADRF specific to that mission really meets a lot of the the common um, effective domains you see in a in a good GRC program, 
everything from handling um, personnel, security controls, uh, effective program management controls, and even around data controls with like information release management, all these pieces that come and, and form a, a very clear, transparent GRC that obviously can feed into um, compliance programs like FedRAMP, as we see, or anything that you might see on a state level, um, which is really interesting because you see all these sensitive data sets that were involved, um, which really underscores another component um, that even with an effective GRC program, if you do not have data classification in, in place, um, it's really hard to know what governance mechanisms to enact. So um, having those elements that you can see with uh, the ADRF effort uh, can really underscore a pattern that's reusable across the customer base. So reusable is really important from a scalability perspective. You mentioned data classification. So what does that mean, and why is that important? Uh, so, uh, so particularly with data classification, it's one is really knowing the sensitive nature of your data, understanding at each level where particular protective mechanisms that need to apply, the reporting structure, audibility elements, all these things where you know how to um, handle that data appropriate to the risk level associated with it. And it's very important in particular that uh, if you don't have a classification scheme, invariably what you see is organizations usually go one of two routes. Either they overcompensate and then they allocate too many resources, spend too much on uh, handling data because they just don't know it and it really, they're sacrificing other innovative efforts. Or they undercompensate and they really expose themselves to um, inordinate or unacceptable risk. So. We, there are some tools that we have out there when yes. it comes to data cl classification. Can you talk about some of those resources that are available right now? Yeah, absolutely. So um, from a foundational perspective, we have our data classification white paper that's available on our website. Um, we also, from a uh, sort of helps professional services aspect, our AWS professional services, our partners do an excellent job helping customers um, really get down and, and provide strategy and hands-on experience for doing that. On the technical side, uh, we have elements from tagging to services like uh, AWS Glue, um, Amazon Redshift, Macy, um, it, really dependent on the types of data you have and sort of the architecture and design you're trying to do. But um, we have a, a slew of different things that you could come together and, and form a good classification strategy and, and results. So we've recently um, announced a couple of um, new services that are for preview. Can you kind of talk about those services and how this can be a part of um, our customers who are looking to providing more data um, strategies and using those particular services when, it call, when, it, when we're looking at governance within AWS? Right, right. So um, we're talking specifically probably about AWS uh, Security Hub and uh, Control Tower. Uh, so with, um, with Security Hub, you're going to get a good visualization and risk rating for what your operational environment is. And, um, and that'll give you a good posture from a governance perspective on the effectiveness of your policies. Um, on the control tower side, you're gonna actually instantiate guardrails. And what's interesting about the five safes is because it's, it's a straightforward policy mechanism on, on data governance that you can actually enact programmatic policies and automation um, pretty straightforward with things like IAM uh, policies and boundary policies uh, and all the other source control policy mechanisms. 
in conjunction with things like organizations to really um, solidify and constrain your operations to the appropriate level. Yeah, and you mentioned about policies, and that's one of the things that um, organizations really have to enforce. And now they can have the opportunity of automating this in AWS, like using Control Tower, um, because like you were talking about how they can integrate with IAM, they can also create data retention policies um, using S3, but having that all done right there and having that governance, if you will, to make sure that that is happening on a consistent basis. Um, so now I'm going to switch to Julia. Um, you know, now that we have, you know, you've built a solution and, and you talked about I don't about like calling it a solution. I like to think about it as being because every entity is different, it's more of a conversation. So it's not like you've got a silver bullet. It is uh, working back and forth with the agencies to figure out how we fit in with what they want. So you yeah. have mentioned V2. So what does so what were some of the <coughs> benefits and success that you've seen for V1? Can I jump in there real quick? Yes. So just to dovetail on that, I think from a GRC compliance perspective. That was the, the, the moving target that we had. The fact that you can't call it a solution, the fact that it's not an enterprise SaaS. Um, there were moving targets that composed of um, the, stewardship, the stewardship component of it, the training component of it, um, the data that's coming from disparate sources, then the underlying infrastructure, all of that was, so if someone came and said, um, what's the sales pitch for ADRF? And they come and they, they look at this ecosystem Someone might be uh, inclined to go, I want this, but not that. Like, I want the, tr the custom training curriculum um, around data analytics. You, could, you wouldn't be able to really do that because they're all so intricate. So now, now you have to design a security program around all of those components and not just a piece of software. So I think um, from a GRC perspective, where data is going to be more of the focus and, and that kind of being the, the central hub for everything else. Like in the case of ADRF, data is that centralized hub and all the other components are critical pieces of it. You couldn't really just, and we've had debates on this where if we went to present this to someone, they said, well, we really like that training piece of it. Could I just take that training? Well, no, then you're not really getting ADRF. But if you look at the entire infrastructure, you have this scalar, scalable infrastructure, you have a private box, you have a public controlled authorized box, and then you have an open AMI. So all of that in one giant ecosystem is ADRF. And that's why it's hard. But they can, people can have the individual things and it's open source. So you know our vision here is to have a community approach. So, um, the, so what we're thinking of this, and, and let me talk about it, it since version one and version two. So version one was essentially, um, can we uh, implement the five safes for a bunch of confidential microdata? And we ran through maybe 250 uh, government agency staff from about 90 agencies across the country. Uh, so it was, that was it. Now, the, where version two is coming is just having the data in one place is, a, is necessary but not sufficient. So part of what we're doing with the, with the documentation module is trying to get people who work with the data 
Anyone who's ever worked with data knows it changes, the definitions change, the way in which it's collected changes. So building a rich context like Amazon.com or like TripAdvisor where people who are working with the data will contribute knowledge about how variable B56 underscore seven is, is generated. Contributing that, building on previous knowledge, so we're running a rich context competition that Eric Schmitz uh, supporting um, to build knowledge about how was this data set used before? Who else has used it? What code was used? What were the results? What were the methodology? So the classes uh, to which we've referred it, are not just to um, get people to know how to work with the data, but also to get people to contribute knowledge as they're producing new products, as they're developing new linked data sets, so that you understand why the kid died. Right? I mean, that, that's at the core of what we're, we're interested about. Um, and so working on this with Jupyter Notebooks, um, so that you're building that rich context so when people land on a data set, it's not just a data set. Up comes, like Amazon.com, it says, like, Jenny, nice to see you. Last time you landed on this data, this is what you, these were the other data sets you used. Other people like you have used this data to look at dead kids in LA County or whatever. So you're building a community of knowledge. And the, and the key thing here, and this is the last slide that I'm going to show, is that what empowers government agencies to share their data is because of the cloud, you, no individual state has to, agency has to send their data to another state agency, because then they're not going to do it. And one of the reasons the ADRN in the UK failed, the agencies weren't going to send their data into one central place. But when you send it out to the cloud, they retain stewardship. They know how the data are being used, and they can share data across agency lines and across state lines. So that's version two. We did the ADRF for the classes, and we showed that you could bring in the data from all the different states. And now you can bring in federal, state, local uh, uh, information. So really, the five safes, but combining the um, safe people with them sharing their knowledge about the data. You mentioned data stewardship. Why is that important here? Well, it's, part of it is the law. Um, legally, in order for an agency to share data, they have to be able to ensure that the data are being um, protected. And with Title 13, for example, is a $250,000 fine and or five years in jail. Title 26, $600,000 fine and or 10 years in jail. So part of it's legal, part of it's ethical, uh, part of it is, you know, um, you, you've got to be able to document to the citizens that you're using the data for the right purposes. So data stewardship is at the core. Without that, you're nowhere. That's very good. Um, so now that we have um, providing that means to the researchers to access the sensitive data with the five safes uh, embodied here, um, what kind of impact has it had? It's, it's huge. I mean, if you think about it, the, and we're sitting here in Amazon, right? The, I'm an economist. The five biggest uh, companies in the United States, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Facebook, um, Google, and Amazon, right? 
uh, they're all built on data. They have figured out how to use the data and, and um, improve um, economic activity and social activity or however, whatever the different definitions are. Um, and the 20 years ago, the biggest companies were GE and GM in terms of market cap per employee. Well, we just heard what happened to GM, right? They're, they're laying off workers and, and they're a declining industry. So the private sector has figured out how to use data. I think if we can get the public sector to figure out how to use data, then you know, next time there is a, a terrorist attack or in New York City, You've got the information to get resources to people because you know where they are, not because you're relying on 10-year-old data generated from surveys. You can deliver supplies. You can deliver goods and services to where they're needed. And so transforming the public sector in a safe, secure way, uh, the way that the private sector has been able to do it is critical. And then part of the training, of course, is not, it, this isn't just a computer science problem. It's a privacy, confidentiality, ethics. Uh, how do you do that in a, in a secure, ethical way? Training, that comes up a lot. And um, you provide training as well um, to those researchers. How have and they- to, to the government agencies. And to the government agencies. How receptive have they been to this? It's been fantastic, yeah. So, so people, told us that, oh, you're never going to be able to treat, teach government agency staff. They're just running stuff through Excel. We had government agency staff. They're as smart and as dedicated and as motivated as you can imagine, and train them up on fairly sophisticated techniques. The key is training them on their own data to do problems that serve their mission and, and that's what's important. That's how you move forward. It's not abstract. It's not, with all due respect to the computer scientists in here, it's not training people how to code Hello World. It's, it's trying to figure out how to allocate resources better to people who need it. You coming from the technical world, what do you think about that? About I, I think there's a degree of a little bit of Hello World in the beginning. Um, and then it kind of goes forward into actual real-life data sets. So I, I th again, from, from our perspective, um, the infrastructure was really uh, kind of key in, like one of the things that they needed to do was to launch a, a thin client that was bundled with the new tools that ADRF composes of, some of the proprietary code that ADRF composes with, but also some of the legacy tools that maybe some of the older, um, I don't want to call them older, but people who are using legacy data analytics tools. So we needed to have a ability for someone to come in and very easily launch a thin client and use tools that they may be used to or maybe experiment with new tools. And so that infrastructure was something that we had to put together as part of a secure design. So they're not able to you know, move data across from the thin client to unauthorized location and so forth and only get access to the data that they are authorized to. So all of that behind the scenes has a technical process, but also there's some procedures that have to kind of go back and forth, ping pong between NYU and the Census Bureau. So there is a, there's a little bit of that strategic element to it, if that makes sense. We may have questions from you. Yes. Um, so he mentioned one thing about security design. So I'm gonna ask this one question to Tim. Tim, 
have you seen when people when you've been working with Yusef and you've um, known Julia as well? Uh, we always have this statement of privacy and security by design. In this particular case, the approach that they use. Can you talk about um, why that approach is really important when you start building before doing privacy and security later? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it, and it's a mantra. You're hearing, especially more in, in the last couple of years, more and more, and you're going to hear it more going forward about moving security to the left, moving it at the inception of ideation, um, really understanding um, how to craft your system. And it goes back to the GRC component, because if you understand, one, the data, the classification, the governance policies you need to enact, as well as then that'll cascade down to uh, modeling the risk appropriately. Um, which then will feed whatever compliance program. If it's a commercial entity, it may be that allows them to enter the market and compete. If it's um, uh, a public agency, it allows them to fulfill their mission while maintaining safety and security. So uh, I think it's, it's a fundamental aspect that as you bring it to the, the inception part, it also makes it easier to innovate uh, in a more constant fashion later on because then you're, you're not having to go miles down the road get gated, come all the way back, you're able to make more iterative feedback loops and, and quickly change things because you've already have a, a good foundation. That's exactly right. All right, so Julia and, uh, and Yusef and Tim um, are able to answer questions. Um, you know, we'd like you guys to ask some questions that they may have. I don't know if we have a microphone that's available, so you're gonna have to speak a little loud um, for your question. It's, it's both. Um, because there's stringent Title 13 requirements, and, and not only just the Title 13 requirements, because a lot of this flows through Census Bureau to authorize data sets per user, um, there is a manual process. Part of it is automated on the infrastructure side, but really the workflow per se is, is a, a first gate that goes through Census Bureau. So it's I think from a user perspective and a data perspective, it probably starts there. And at that point, once we get that, okay, this data set is gonna be okay for these groups, or this project is assigned to this user, or these sets of users, that's something that kind of comes up first as part of design, and it's kind of like the inception of it. And then from there, it's kind of a, uh, an automated process thereafter. But it does start specifically because, and I think you'll see that more and more as, as there's a, a larger volume of disparate data, it's very hard to, and especially if it's being controlled by an external entity, in this case, the, the Census Bureau, it, there's typically a process that has to go through a few gates of approvals before you can actually hit the green button and go, all right, go. Um, and that was the case definitely for ADRF. And I think that projects that are, are dealing with disparate levels of security and, and sensitivity of, of data, you're gonna see that same trend where it can't just hit the button and go. Um, and that's, there's a degree of automation that you could do, but at the end of the day, you're at the speed of the government and at the control of the government in this particular case, if that makes sense to you. So, uh, it was nuts. 
<laughs> so, um, it, the, the, the Act, the uh, Commission on Evidence-Based Policy Making Act, was passed uh, end of March 2016. June 2016, census came to me and asked, could we build a um, secure uh, clearinghouse? And we tried to do it internally at census, and then by about September, it was clear that what we needed to do was to go to FedRAMP and to AWS. So September, we then had to find uh, Earthling and LunarLine. And the problem was we also needed to run these classes because we needed to show that we could get data in and um, get governments to provide data. So we were running the first class starting February 9th. So we would have, of 2017. So we were having 60 people from about 40 different government agencies coming in February 9th to be running a 10-day class, uh, building Jupyter Notebooks around it. So we were building the plane as we were flying it. So September, the decision was made to go to FedRAMP. We had it up and running, uh, maybe not in the most beautiful fashion, uh, with census authority to test by February 9th of 2017. Uh, and then we went through the whole, um, uh, we got full authorization by, I want to say, October uh, 2017, and we got census full authority to operate by February 2018. So and we, in that period, we'd run through 175 people from about 60 different government agencies. And at this stage, we've run, we've run almost 300 from 90 different government agencies. So it's been a very challenging um, uh, two years. So Yusuf, can you talk about the assessment and authorization process sure. timescale? I, I want to comment on what Julia said. Mm -hmm. So I think the biggest assumption being made at that timeline is that, A, you're having to set expectations for developers to not only implement security controls, but to prepare for a huge amount of artifacts to be collected, to be controlled, uh, to have their, their continuous integration controlled by the expectations and the parameters of FedRAMP. And then on top of that, whatever census says. So how do you solve this and, problem? And you keep saying census, but it was also the state and local agencies. Right, right, yeah. the state and local agencies as well. But the, the, the ATO from census, from that Correct. perspective, that control for an ATO was a big deal. So the challenge there is you basically have to craft a DevSecOps program, taking those developers, making them understand that they, these are the expectations going forward. This is what's around the corner when the assessor comes. This is what happens after you, you get an ATO. How do you do continuous integration and deployments when you are, are kind of beholden by this process. What is your operations going to look like? So having, having developers from the get-go uh, fully invest in the expectations of a security program like FedRAMP is probably the most critical thing to get speed going. Because everybody talks about this ATO in a day and all this stuff. That stuff just doesn't exist unless developers really know that what's ahead of me. So it's not like uh, at the infrastructure level, it's probably a lot easier uh, as you automate. 
but at the application side and getting those developers to be involved in that audit process when really that's not their day-to-day. -day. That's not what they want to do. They don't want to talk and think about security and operations and infrastructure. They want to build their product. So getting them to pivot and having their, their mindset shift to that paradigm was something that we had to do during design phase. So while we were designing the, the environment, we were also coming up with this DevSecOps program for the developers at NYU to be fully engaged, and they really did. They really worked closely with the and, auditors. And, but then the other thing is it was very much conversation with the agencies and with census they had not done anything like this before so you know we we went down several blind alleys got arms and legs blown off because we did the wrong thing um, and but it was a conversation and we figured it out jointly in conversation with the agencies so that's very have much part here, of the Tom. yeah so obviously the uh, the census was the sponsor the agency sponsor so they're they're good with the authorization you got. How about the level of um, cooperation or acceptance from the state and local agencies? Like, you got a FedRAMP, I'm in, or was there some skepticism? No, the, the Fed, well, um, so the FedRAMP was huge to be able to check the box. We had to do a lot of explaining about what exactly was involved. And they, we had to explain what the AWS setup was because most agencies, they want a physical server with you know, uh, a sneaker net, that's exactly right, with a, with a box around it. Uh, so it was an education process, but you know what? Now that the agencies see the value proposition, they're, they're coming around. So now people are realizing that the cloud is the way. And by the way, we got a 2018 GCN award for the ADRF. Uh, and if you take a look at the October GCN um, um, newsletter, you know, John Abab talks about the, the value of the Census Bureau having sponsored this uh, in the cloud. And it's pushed the Census Bureau a long way away, a long way along as well in their thinking. Yes. Uh, just to expand upon that slightly, um, you said that the solution, sorry, that conversation was fundamental to persuading disparate agencies to contribute their data to the, the architecture. But um, it, it, it seems like they're still putting an awful lot of PII into your system. Given oh, that's a great question. The question is, is uh, we're putting PII in. We actually don't. What we do is uh, we still, to kind of get around the queasy part of having you know, names and social security numbers in the cloud, um, we uh, hash it with a, a private salt. Uh, so it is de-identified data that goes up into the cloud. So there's still a shared key between? There is a shared key. And we built a, a process. Um, so the guy who runs the privacy protocols at uh, Census used to do the privacy stuff at NIST. And so we worked to develop a, a protocol that then we have been able to apply to all the state and local agencies as well. Good question. Yeah. One more question. OK. Question. What was the question? Uh, the sanitized data load level of FedRAMP. No, we went with FedRAMP moderate. Um, presumably it would have, but we just, uh, because we were also worried about Title 13, we just went with the FedRAMP moderate. Um, and I have to say, uh, 
when I explained the FedRAMP moderate in the UK, they were like, oh my God, I wish we had at least some guidelines like this. So as much as people complain about it, I, it, it's nice to have some structure that you can follow. Well, I want to thank the panelists for being here. But before we go, I'm going to have um, some key takeaways. So I'm going to ask one last question for each of you to answer. Um, so what important new public sector trend will we be talking about next year? And what is your best prediction about data governance in the cloud? Um, so I think we need to be thinking about not just administrative data, but data from cell phones and um, Twitter and social media and 5G. So people down the hall from me at NYU, they're capturing data using sensors. Uh, so we're going to have to figure out how to pull that data on, how to make use of it in an ethical way, how to document it, and how to use that to provide information about the next, so when the next terrorist attack hits or when the next Hurricane Sandy hits, um, how to provide information to emergency technicians or figure things out for opioid crisis, lots and lots of policy issues. So I think we're going to be moving along to new types of data and how do we, who owns it, uh, what's the governance structure, what's the ethical use, what are the trade-offs. Um, so otherwise, you know, the public sector is going to be cooked. Uh, predictions. Um, I think probably the scope of GRC or the scope of an assessment in the next five to ten years will be entirely 100% data centered. I think the infrastructure will be irrelevant. I think people are already going down the road of design to failure. Um, people are already talking about design with resilience in mind and that specifically means design to failure. So at the end, if your infrastructure fails, what auditors want to know is do you have adequate controls around that data? Uh, is, it, is it properly logged? Is it protected? Is it encrypted? Is it the five safes? Right, right. So from that perspective, that's where I think that as of right now, the scope of an audit is typically all layers of a solution. I know you hate that word, but a solution. Um, and at the end of the day, I think in the future, it's going to be 100% data centric. It won't be the components right now. There's a huge amount of checkboxes. I think that will go away eventually. You know. Tim. So my answer is sort of going to blend both what I would see in the public sector over the next year or so, as well as just in GRC in general. Um, is particular using machine learning to really start looking at risk and data and actually in a more proactive um, manner be able to actually have that risk review element based off machine learning drive policy considerations, drive um, automation pieces into GRC. Um, and that's gonna go for both public sector and private. And in particular, we're gonna see, in my opinion, that really heavily involved in the IoT arena because of the amount of old legacy sensors, new sensors, trusted, untrusted, pooled data, things that you're going to have to analyze and get some risk posture from, which then that's when you're going to have to understand classification, how you're going to enact appropriate governance and um, attribute risk appropriately for the organization. All right, thank you. So 
Um, we appreciate everyone coming out here. Um, and this concludes our session. They'll be standing here um, for, if you would like to come up and speak with them independently, um, we will be here on stage. So thank you for your time and enjoy the rest of reInvent. Again, we have resources that are out there. When it talks about data classification, we have our data classification white paper on our website. Um, and you can learn about the new tools that we have out there, um, AWS Control Tower and AWS Security Hub. Thank you. Thanks for the great question.